This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Tuesday, uh, I would say a fairly busy Tuesday. Over on Wall Street, Goldman Sachs has been reporting numbers. Morgan Stanley has been reporting numbers. Uh, here in Europe, uh, we are uh, watching equity markets tick a little bit higher. Fairly cautious stance, I think, uh, taken by equity investors. Uh, but the Bank of America Fund Manager Survey signaling a lot of enthusiasm for European assets right now. Uh, and then, of course, Alex, tonight we get to, I think, what is probably, and I know people in Davos are going to disagree with me here, probably the main event, and that is the Bank of Japan's decision a little bit later on. Uh, that is the news that we're going to be sifting through first thing tomorrow morning. Has the potential to have a major impact on markets? Yeah, uh, well, absolutely. I mean, if you're a trader, uh, this is huge. Like, you're putting on positions, and this is going to definitely be a big deal. The other thing that's um, sort of reverberating, though, for markets is Goldman. Um, at some point, at one point, Goldman shares were down by about 7%. We haven't seen that in almost a year. And that's just in stark contrast with, A, the other banks that reported on Friday, and B, Morgan Stanley, which stock is up. We'll talk about this later on in the hour, but just the amount of expenses for Goldman is just really, really, really rough right now. It is. Um, it is David Solomon's birthday. He is the CEO of Goldman Sachs. I'm not entirely sure that the uh, the market reaction that we're seeing is necessarily the present that he would have been hoping for. Uh, and we are building up to a big investor day that's going to be coming up very shortly. Uh, I think there are going to be a lot of very pointed questions for Mr. Solomon at that investor day. I think there were very, very pointed questions uh, on the call as well. Um, and also, it was just really odd. He was talking about a lot of inorganic growth opportunities, too. It just feels like that feels off. Like when you're talking about how much your expenses are rising, talking about that at the yeah. same time, I found that to be a bit confusing. Inorganic growth opportunities basically means I'm going to go out and buy something. That's what I'm saying. Like, do you really yeah. want to hear that when you're also like, geesh, look at my comp ratio. It's not good. Well, it depends if, whether the stuff you're going to buy is going to be revenue generating in the same way as we're seeing with the wealth uh, acquisitions that have been made over at Morgan Stanley. I, Mr. Gorman has has pulled a blinder in some ways in that area, um, delivering some really solid results, outweighing mm -hmm. certainly the problems that, that they're facing in investment banking, wealth management, absolutely smashing it over at Morgan Stanley. We've got an update a little bit later on on this story. Let's get an update on what else we need to know. Charlie Pellet has returned. I thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Train drivers across the UK will strike again at the end of next month after rejecting the latest pay offer from rail companies. The ASLEF union says that members will walk out on February 1st and 3rd in a move likely to bring the network to a standstill. The first date will coincide with separate strikes by teachers and as many as 100,000 civil servants who are also demanding higher pay in the face of double-digit inflation. Royal Mail says no personal data was compromised during a cyber attack detected last week, though the UK postal firm continues to grapple with the situation and letters and parcels are still not being exported. Britain's biggest phone companies are set to reveal double-digit price hikes as people endure the worst cost-of-living crisis in a generation. The UK's main inflation gauge, the Consumer Prices Index, will be announced tomorrow and is forecast to stay at about 10% 
and close to 40-year highs if BT, CK Hutchinson's 3UK and Vodafone Group don't change their current pricing models, bills for millions of customers will start increasing by about 14% from April. Inflation numbers published in February will determine prices for O2 customers. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Inflation definitely still part of all of our lives, uh, Charlie, and it looks like it could be certainly here in the UK a problem for really quite some time. Um, we have therefore a a kind of a situation developing where wages are going to start rising fairly aggressively, which is going to pose bigger problems for the Bank of England, which potentially could lead to a 50 basis point hike uh, at the next meeting uh, that the bank is ha- is going to have. Today we saw wage data out of the UK. UK wages at the back end of last year, back end of 22 rising at the fastest rates outside of the pandemic. I, the, the numbers are absolutely blistering. Let me just give you an idea of what is happening here. The, the aggregate number, the average number in November, to November, sorry, 6.4% uh, higher than a year earlier. That includes bonuses. That includes basic wages. This is all according to the ONS. If you strip out the public sector from the uh, from the private sector, it gets really interesting. And this may speak to why we're seeing some of the strikes right now, Alex. Um, you've got private sector wage growth running at 7.2 versus the 3.3 that you're seeing in the public sector. Uh, and that is only going to be kind of further red meat to the unions at the moment who are really concerned about this. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. And also, when you take a look at real pay, so if you strip out inflation yep. to that, real pay is actually falling 2.6% from a year earlier. So well, when you put so, that all together, yeah. how, how, how do unions not not strike at the Absolutely. end of the day? Well, I wish they wouldn't. We just had further rail I know, strikes. I'm That's sorry. Gonna- pose further problems for this show. Uh, UK economy reporter Tom Rees joins us now in the studio. Tom, how will the Bank of England read today's numbers, do you think? Um, I think they'd be quite concerned about these numbers because, I mean, Bailey has directly linked um, what will happen to inflation over the next year um, to the jobs market. I mean, it hopes that the the inflation will fall very rapidly uh, throughout 2023. But he says the one kind of possible stumbling block is on the jobs market and if there is you know not enough workers for employers and that's pushing up wage growth and you've got lots of industrial action that that's also put pushing up uh, pay especially in the public sector then it's going to put uh, more pressure on the bank of england to keep on hiking mm-hmm. as aggressively as they as they did in 2022 what i also find interesting talking about the ons statistics is that they said that 467,000 working days were lost in november and that's the highest since 2011 and that's not counting december where we saw a lot more days worked and i'm wondering what the knock on effect then is to like the overall job market productivity like how how all of that then filters through to the broader economic data um, I, I, it's, it's it's quite interesting. We did we had some GDP figures last week that suggested that the strikes weren't having a major impact on November's data, but I've, I think we're likely to see a much more meaningful impact um, in December. Um, and of of course, I mean, the, part of the economic impact of strikes has been kind of blunted by uh, home working. I mean, lots of you know office workers in London yep. and other big cities can just. Uh, stay at home and do their jobs but it, it, it definitely does have uh, some impact um, and uh, capital economics for for instance think that the impact in December um, will be something up to 0.5 percentage points they expect um, around 1.5 million days to be uh, lost uh, wow. to strikes yeah. in December alone which is obviously a huge amount. Can I just point out that, that we're about to see the teachers going on strike 
And if your kids are at school, yes, you can work from home. Believe you me, as a person that has been through homeschooling... Oh my God, forget it. If your kids are at home, you ain't working. No. Let me just... like that, that. It is a huge challenge. So I think the teachers going on strike could be a little bit of a game changer on that front. Tom, when you look at what is happening with the labour market here... Is this a Brexit effect? I, how many workers is this is this country short of? Um, so, so there was some interesting research out today that suggested that um, the, the Brexit um, immigration controls that uh, have been introduced have impacted um, the labour market to something around three hundred thirty thousand um, workers, which is obviously a huge amount. Um, it's not it's not just Brexit. We've um, we've had a lot of people in the UK retire early than they than yep. they might have otherwise have done. Um, mm-hmm. That's probably more of a pandemic um, effect. And it's just whether... I think the most important thing for the UK is whether we see some of these effects begin to reverse. I mean, the cost of living crisis could make some of those early retirees kind of rethink uh, their retirement yeah. plans. Maybe they've not got as much money as they were hoping to. Um, mm-hmm. And then, obviously... Something that seems to be a bit more unique to the UK than other places is um, our healthcare issues. Um, a lot of the workers that um, have gone into the economic inactivity numbers mm-hmm. are because of long-term sickness. Yep. And people are blaming that on things like the NHS backlogs, uh, long COVID, um, a deterioration in mental health uh, during the pandemic. I mean, all this added up and it's a pretty uh, grim picture if you're an employer wanting to hire lots of staff. Tom. Thank you very much indeed, Tom Rees, UK economy reporter, joining us on the latest data. As Tom says, we're going to get CPI data uh, out tomorrow. We've got lots more to digest before we get to the next Bank of England meeting. Uh, but the market's certainly looking at today's data and thinking there is the distinct possibility of a 50 basis point hike. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Let's turn now to the other main event of the week, and that is, of course, the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. You've got world leaders, innovators all across the globe. They go in the snow. They talk about all the things. Well, earlier, Bloomberg's David Weston sat down with Nick Clegg, Meta Platform's president for global affairs. Um, and they talked about the company, and he started off asking about where they are in the process of moving away from being a traditional social, social media company to something else. We're in a process of transition because, of course, the the building of the metaverse is not an overnight job. This is going to take years. We're at the foothills of the foothills of building the the the, the, the metaverse. This great transition from you know all of us having a phone in the palm of our hands to actually putting something on the on the on the bridge of our nose and being able to communicate with each other as holograms. All of that future will materialise, but it'll take it'll take billions of dollars in investment. It'll t- it'll take sort of some successes, some failures, steps forward, steps backward. Um, but at the same time, of course. Our existing business, our apps, Facebook, Instagram, Messenger, WhatsApp, are actually doing extremely, you know, are in very rude health. We have more human beings using our apps, 3.7 billion every month, over 2 billion every day on WhatsApp, almost 2 billion every day on Facebook, 2 billion every month on Instagram. I mean, these are are huge uh, numbers, and it continues, those apps continue to grow in popularity because, of course, they appeal to a very simple instinct that people like to use technology 
technologies, and in this case, they're free to use because they're it's it's a, it's, an, it's a business paid for by advertising. People like to communicate with family and friends and share stuff with them, and that's that's what those apps are built for. Is your ability to, as they say, monetize an ugly yeah. word, but you know what I mean, make money off of these things? Is it limited by some of the concerns about privacy, some of the regulatory issues in Europe, for example, here, but also back in the United States? Well, so I think you've seen this huge pendulum swing from the kind of tech euphoria of the past where tech could do no wrong. You know, the, the, the era of the Arab Spring where all things bright and beautiful were, were held to be uh, produced by tech. And now, of course, the pendulum has swung pretty kind of pretty dramatically in an opposite direction. And everything that is bad, whether it's an election or a referendum outcome that people don't like or uh, individual distress is, is ascribed to social media. And I think part of, part of kind of finding a, a resting place for that pendulum, because extreme optimism and extreme pessimism are, are both as foolish as, he, as each other, of course involves regulation. There are issues like data privacy, um, content rules, data portability, uh, the rules of, 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 of how social media platforms should operate during election time and so on. All of those are rules that should be set, not by technologists, not by engineers on the West Coast, but by, but by, legislature, by legislators um, uh, elected by voters. And I think that's the process you're seeing. It's most advanced in Europe, but you're seeing that, you're seeing that debate in DC um, as well. It's not producing legislation as much as, 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 it, as occurs, but also in Brussels, in London, in, 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 in Australia, you're seeing this move towards regulation. I suspect some of it won't work very well and won't stand the test of time, and other bits of regulation will, will make sense and will stand the test of time. I suspect one of the reasons you have your important position in Meta is you have been on both sides. I mean, you have been elected right. to Parliament. You have been Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. So you've seen the government side of it, and now you're seeing the, the private sector side of it as well. I'm not saying there's any right answer. I'm not asking for what the regulation is. But give us some principles. From your experience on both sides of it, what are some basic principles you yeah. think that should be followed? Well, I think, I think the secret is in that name, although the, sort of the, the, the best recipe is in that, in that word, principles. I think where, where things go wrong is when legislators, who are not engineers, they're not technologists, they don't know how algorithms work or how AI works and so on and so forth. And given that technology evolves so rapidly, I think where things go wrong is where legislators try and impose some sort of static uh, condition on, on technology that moves very fast. I think where, where legislation and regulation makes more sense is when it's based on some principles, which are sort of evergreen principles that can, that can apply to different technology and to technologies that evolve uh, over time. So to you know, look at these big companies like Meta, like Google, like Twitter, like Apple and so on, look at their systems, hold their systems to account, but don't try and kind of micromanage every bit of content or every change in, in, in you know, every, every change in, in the code that is used uh, to, to, to produce the product. I think that's the, that's the fundamental uh, lesson that I've certainly kind of observed so far. That was Nick Clegg, Meta Platforms President for Global Affairs, joining us from Davos. And coming up, uh, we're going to continue the conversation of a potential trade war between the U.S. Uh, and Europe when it comes to the IRA. And here from Olaf Schultz. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. Let's turn back to the European energy story, which is improving. Europe, though, continues to grapple with the struggles brought on by the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. For more on this, the outlook for the German economy and the war in Ukraine, Bloomberg's editor-in-chief, John Micklethwaite, spoke a few minutes ago with the German chancellor, Olaf Scholz. I'm absolutely convinced that this will not happen, that we are going into a recession. 
and uh, we showed that we were that we are able to react to a very difficult situation. I think no one really expected that we would easily survive a situation when there would be a complete stop of the supply of Russian gas to to Germany and Europe. And but we succeeded with. Uh, all the decisions we took to, 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 to fill our storage capacities with gas, that we put 20 coal plants back to work in producing electricity, in using the Norwegian and gas and the Dutch gas, and in using the capacities of Western European plan, uh, ports, and building new LNG ports at the northern shore of Germany. And the first one was opened in the end of last year, after 200 days of work. The next one last week, and the third to come will be opened the next week. Do you think, Chancellor, that that is enough for next year? It, Europe has avoided a gas crisis, this, an energy crisis this year, partly because of the provisions you talked about, partly because of the rather nice warm weather, although Berlin seems to be an exception at the moment. For all those reasons, we've got away with it this year. Next year, do you think that you can get through without blackouts? You're giving up nuclear power. You're giving up a lot of that gas that you had this year. I'm sure that we will be able to go through the situation again. And this is because we are constantly increasing our capacities for uh, importing gas uh, from the northern German ports. And this will not stop with the things we did already. It will continue. And uh, we will build a capacity that gives us a chance to have as much gas as we had uh, before uh, this war. Uh, and are able to import it without importing gas from Russia. So you've uh, a fairly rosy scenario. You're going to avoid recession, you think, and you also think that you'll be okay to get through the winter. I yesterday, in domestic politics, as you know, your, your defence minister, Christine Lambrecht, resigned. You've just appointed today a new person, Boris Pistorius, and the big issue in front of you is tanks. You have the Leopard 2 tank, and the Ukraine wants them. Ukraine says that it needs those tanks. And there are two ways you could get it to them. You could either give them from your own supply of Leopard, Leopard 2 tanks, or you could allow your allies, like Poland, countries like that who have bought the tank already, to re-export it. And I wondered where you had got to on that. Are you prepared to let those tanks go to the Ukrainians? Let me, me draw the, the picture. Um, I think after the United States, it is Germany and the UK that are delivering the most weapons to Ukraine, and we will continue to do so. As you know, we are absolutely active in doing the real hard stuff, and this was, is the case with all the artillery we delivered with our howitzers. This is uh, what we did together with the United States and UK when we delivered multi-rocket launches. It is uh, what no one else did. And we are doing a lot in the question of air defense with our Gepard tanks, with uh, what we did uh, uh, with this Iris T system that is now so successful that the whole world is looking at it because mm. it seems to be nearly 100% effective in fighting against missiles. And we also decided together with the United States that we will deliver Patriot systems to the Ukraine for the air defense. And in many other fields that are very important, we are doing the necessary stuff. And shortly before our debates, 
we decided together with the United States that we will do um, something with uh, special tanks, uh, the, the Bradley from the United States, the Marder from Germany. And one message is ab above all. We always act together with our allies and friends. We are never going alone, because this is necessary in a very difficult situation like this. So and I'm very much, I'm very much uh, thinking that it is necessary that we are cooperating in this way. And this is why I'm not announcing things uh, which a lot of people are doing. I'm just always thinking about the situation. I'm discussing with the friends and I'm taking the necessary decisions when there is a reason for doing so. And one of the aims we are having and all the support we are giving is that we support the Ukraine as long as it is necessary with all the means we can use, but also always avoiding that this war is escalating to a war not between Russia, which is the imperialistic aggressor, and Ukraine, who has all the reason for defending its own integrity and has all, and it is good for us that we are supporting them, but to avoid that this is going to be a war between Russia and, uh, and the North Atlantic Treaty organizations. That was German Chancellor Olaf Scholz speaking with John Micklethwaite, the editor-in-chief uh, for Bloomberg. Um, so, Guy, I, I thought it was interesting as the conversation continued, they talked more about the EU, uh, Europe, as well as the U.S. They talked about uh, Germany and China and trade dependence. And it really did seem like he was trying to, like, slow roll that conversation a little bit. Like, hey, guys, we work together. We're allies with the U.S. We don't want any huge friction. It's going to be okay. We're going to work it out. Similar to actually what we heard from Olaf Schlostein uh, from Evercore uh, earlier yep. in the show. The German chancellor, German chancellors, historically, have always taken a much more mercantile approach to relations with, with, with big trading blocks like the United States and China. Um, and and I think he's just continuing that theme. I, I, they they don't want geopolitical ripples or political ripples to impact what happens with trade. That has mm -hmm. always been the German way, and and it, it it increasingly has caused friction. It's caused friction now with Russia. It's causing friction with with China, and, and there's no reason to to think that it might not with the United States either. Yeah, but. And again, being able for Europe to go after their own subsidies and their own uh, industries versus making sure part of the IRA is changed so they can be included, those are very different things. And I wonder yeah. how that's going to shake out. Um, anyway, I mentioned Ralph Schlostein. We'll hear from him next. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Let's get a quick check in here on U.S. markets. So um, it's a pretty mixed day when it comes to the S&P and the Nasdaq, for example. The S&P is now down just two-tenths of one percent. It's still above its 200-day moving average. And it closed above that level on Friday. That's the good stuff. The bad stuff is what's happening with the Dow. And I realize everyone rolls their eyes at the Dow. But the reason why is why we care. Goldman Sachs is erasing almost a whopping 200 points from the Dow. Brutal, brutal quarter. 
and the stock just continued to grind lower and lower and lower as the call went on. We'll talk about that in just a moment, but it's really its comp ratio hitting a decade high and expenses climbing that really uh, tanked this stock. In terms of the bond market, um, it's a little bit mixed. The front end uh, yields are actually much lower. There's a nice bid in there, lower by about three basis points, and they're a little higher on the back end. We got really terrible um, Empire Manufacturing PMI, but the outlook over six months wasn't terrible, and maybe you're seeing that reflected a little bit uh, within the bond market. That's a snapshot here. Let's get over to Charlie Pellet. I thank you very much. And here's what's going on. UK wages are rising at a near unprecedented pace, heaping pressure on the Bank of England to deliver a tenth consecutive interest rate increase next month. The Office for National Statistics says average earnings, excluding bonuses, were 6.4% higher in the three months through November than a year earlier. That is the biggest increase since records began in 2001, excluding the height of the coronavirus pandemic. Britain was in the grip of its worst industrial strife for more than 30 years, even before the rail network and postal service ground to a halt over the festive period. Now we are learning some 467,000 working days were lost to strikes in November, a 10-year high after a wave of walkouts caused by the most severe cost-of-living crisis in a generation. A report shows Brexit immigration curbs have led to a shortfall of 330,000 workers in the UK, contributing to a tighter labor market and fueling inflation. An analysis by the Center for European Reform found low-skilled sectors, including retail and hospitality, have been hit hardest by the end of freedom of movement following the UK's departure from the European Union. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie. By the way, great to have you back. Thank you for joining us. Um, okay, so uh, I was mentioning what's happening with U.S. stocks. For European equities, um, the Euro stocks 600 is having its best winning streak since August of 2022, rising straight for five days, killer start to the year. And the question becomes then, what's actually baked in? Or as I like to put it, are investors a little bit over their skis? We spoke to Ralph Schlostein, uh, Evercore Chairman Emeritus, um, uh, earlier in the television program to get his take on all things markets. And we started off with Europe. I think probably what happened is we were we were on the ground too much rather right. than being over our skis. And there was so much negativity about Europe uh, because of the energy situation, uh, because of higher inflation here, and because the ECB was a little bit more behind the curve than the Fed and the expectation that they would have to do even more catch-up than our Fed has done. And I think what we're seeing is you know, obviously the better weather yep. and strong energy supplies have make it appear that we're going to make it through this year without yep. any energy issues. Uh, inflation is coming down a little bit quicker than people expected. And there's been more strength in the both the consumer sector and in the manufacturing sector yep. than we've expected over the last couple months. But it feels like we're, we're, it feels like we're early cycle. It doesn't we're, feel like we're going into a recession. It feel like I'm talking to people, in it and, and the conversations I'm having feel like kind of early cycle conversations rather than late cycle conversations. Completely agree. But I think we have to recognize, and you know, I've been in finance for 42 years now, I would say that this is the most uncertain time about what's going to happen in the real economy than I've seen in my 42 years. Not scary. Uh, right. 08 I'm was scary. Yep, yep. COVID was scary. This is not scary. I mean, the, the range of options here are, uh, you know, uh, soft landing, 
mild recession may be slightly worse than a mild recession. I think the you know, two standard deviation event would be a serious problem. Very few people expect that. Yep. Uh, but there's so much uncertainty about how far does the Fed go, how long do they go, and what effect does that have on the real economy, particularly because, as we all know, Fed action lags yep. one to uh, 12 to 18 months on the effect on the real economy. So the Fed started tightening a year ago. Mm -hmm. We're really just starting to feel the effect of that today. Ralph, that's like quite a statement uh, coming from you with four decades of experience um, watching the market. So tie it to your bread and butter and look at the M&A landscape. If we've learned anything from banks over the last couple days is that investment banking is pretty bad. It is really, really grim. M&A um, in particular, uh, banking fees down, uh, particularly Goldman, like 48%. How does that evolve as the uncertainty is so intense? Well, as I think I've said more than once on this show, and uh, I actually appear sometimes with other anchors on so, Bloomberg. No, 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 we don't talk but, about that. Uh, <laughs> you told me a moment ago you were becoming more diplomatic. <laughs> Just Sorry. in the UK. <laughs> uh, uh, uncertainty is the enemy of M&A. Uh, as we That's at Ever, to say. Uh, as as we at Evercore uh, spend a lot of time with clients, uh, our clients are ambitious. They're talking about lots of things that they want to do once they have greater visibility about the real economy. Uh, we've had we have uncertainty now about the direction of the real economy, how, uh, how severe will be the impact of Fed actions on our economy and ECB on Europe. Uh, financing costs have obviously gone up. Uh, the equity market has had a fair amount of volatility. All of those are things that cause uh, CEOs and private equity firms who are the backbone of M&A to pause. Uh, it's not dead by any stretch of the imagination. I think we're in a little bit of a, an air bubble or an air pocket right now. Uh, certainly the level of dialogue that we have with our clients would suggest that once this period of uncertainty is behind us, activity will pick up. In terms of, you know, the you know, I represent an independent firm. Uh, we do just advisory work, unlike the big lending uh, banks. And uh, generally, in periods like this, when M&A has been a little weaker, uh, we've gained market share. When I listen to what CEOs are saying, they are telling me that they're still fairly positive in a way that I'm quite surprised about. They, they see uncertainty, as you describe it, on the horizon, but they're still hiring people. They're not laying people off at this point in time. Bob Prince was talking about this from Bridgewater just a moment ago, uh, talking to Lisa and David. And, and, and his, his basic view is, therefore, that we are going to struggle to get certainty on things like how far the Fed is going to go, how far inflation is ultimately uh, going to is going to take us in terms of how long it's going to last. All of these things. At the moment, companies aren't delivering what you would normally expect them to be delivering, which is laying people off, causing a recession. When does that happen? Well, there's a very interesting phenomenon going on right now. Uh, individual CEOs. Uh, are reasonably optimistic about their business. Right. And they're very concerned about the general economy, everybody else's business. <laughs> How that sorts out uh, is going to be a very interesting thing. If mm -hmm. you added up 
the uh, collective view of every CEO of their own business, it would be better than what they or their CFOs or their economists are telling you their view of the macro economy. Oh, that was fascinating. Basically, individual companies, individual CEOs uh, are talking about the idea that their business is okay. And as a result of which they're fairly positive going forward, but they see the kind of the negative macro news and get a little bit nervous, but they're not acting on it. Anyway, Ralph Schlossstein, Slight Stein, absolutely fascinating as ever. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back. This is The Cable. We're live on DAV Digital Radio. So Goldman Sachs' stock on Wall Street is now down by 7.5%, 7.49%. This after, let's call it a disappointing set of earnings, which was delivered a little bit earlier uh, by David Solomon and co. Um, the, the employment story is, is really relevant here because they are struggling with costs. And they're also actively talking at Goldman Sachs about the possibility of acquisitions, uh, maybe to to revive their fortunes, which is fascinating when you are under such cost pressure. Anyway, uh, they're still having to pay people a lot of money. What is happening this week is, and it kind of picks up from what we saw at the back end of last week, is that we're seeing all of the US bank earnings, then all of the CEOs of the big banks are getting on planes and going to the World Economic Forum in Davos. City delivered its numbers on Friday. Its CEO, of course, is Jane Frazier. She expects to see a series of countries entering a recession this year. She caught up a little bit earlier on with David Weston at Bloomberg's Year Ahead of event, head event at the World Economic Forum. And she talked about vulnerabilities that exist that, that basically amplify uh, previous recessions being not present in this one, which could lead to a mild recession. We'll see what happens. What we are seeing is different countries are at very different places. So you actually cannot speak in generalities we expect to see a rolling series of country recessions, but short of anything crazy happening geopolitically, and this time last year we wouldn't have predicted what happened in Ukraine, um, you've seen the tails come in. So you've seen the over-optimism from some about uh, soft landings and the economy's doing well, but equally you've seen the, down, the severe case downside also coming in. I think the general view in the States certainly one we hold at City, is we expect to see a mild recession, um, largely driven by the painfully persistent service inflation. Um, it's coming off, but it's still pretty high, and we do expect to see central banks continue tightening as a result. Um, but the vulnerabilities that amplified previous recessions around the world are not present. You know, banks are in very good shape, consumer balance sheets are in good shape, corporate balance sheets are in good shape. And I think that omens well for a mild recessions when they come, um, rather than ones that we have to be worried about. Uh, do we know exactly the state of the economy? Because there's a lot more that is in private behind uh, closed walls that, since the great financial crisis, because of some of the regulations a lot has moved out of banks like yours that are highly regulated. Are we confident we know the situation? I, to the extent that anybody can be confident, um, you know, we, we serve clients across the spectrum, not just those that are in the public markets, but the private asset space is, is a very important one. And we certainly see um, very healthy corporate balance sheets across the board. Um, our net credit losses from commercial bank and from our corporate banking business in the last year, I've never seen them so low. 
Um, and I think this, this omens well in our M&A activity, for example, the number of dialogues that we're having with CEOs about truly transformational M&A at the moment is enormous. Not quite the pipeline it was last year, um, but it is a pipeline that um, as prices have become more reasonable and corporate balance sheets are in good shape, that um, CEOs are thinking transformation much more than you might think, despite the fact that there's also an adjustment to the reality of um, more mild recessions um, ahead. That was Jane Frazier, uh, City's CEO, speaking with David Weston at Bloomberg's Year Ahead event, also in Davos, Switzerland. Um, and that really just sets the tone for what all of these banks are going to have to be dealing with as well. We're going to hear from Credit Suisse uh, chairman in just a moment. Um, also, you heard from UBS, who sort of as you sit, shift through this environment, who are the guys that can actually hire and take advantage of the environment for when we bottom out? And which guys are going to be still cost-cutting and trimming fat? I think we know who's trimming fat over at Goldman. Uh, obviously, Credit Suisse is going to have bonus issues. It feels like guy that's if, going to become the problem. Who's staffed and ready to go when things get better? Yeah. And in what businesses are they going to flourish? Um, it's fascinating to see just how well Morgan Stanley has done with wealth management. Yeah. Uh, I suspect that's raised a few eyebrows uh, on the side-by-side over at Goldman Sachs today. Um, and, and, and I think this is... It's understanding what the nature of the business you want to be in as well, I think, is a question uh, that I think a lot of these bank CEOs have to answer. We're going to continue this in a moment. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Obviously, you know, we had such a poor year. That was a horrifying year for Credit Suisse. So I think people have realistic expectations that it will not look great. On one hand, you have that topic of retention. And then, look, we have plenty of parts of the group that is doing extremely well. So you need to compensate somewhat fairly, but you obviously need to look also at the shareholder perspective. You know, you suffer huge losses. That is clear that the budget get cut also on bonuses. That was Axel Lehman. He is chairman over Credit Suisse. Although I didn't get the full answer as to if the board's comp is going to be cut, but, you know, we'll let that lie for just a moment. Um, So this is on the heels over at Davos of Goldman Sachs' Morgan Stanley reporting today, and the two could not be more different. Shalai Basik joins me now in the studio. She's been covering all of this. Can we just start with Goldman here? Um, Stock is down 7%. We haven't seen this kind of slide in a long, long time, like more than a year. are analysts saying that this is justified based on the comp ratio? Listen, it's not just the analysts. You have David Solomon, the CEO of Goldman Sachs himself, saying that these results were not what he wanted. It's not pretty. And remember, Goldman Sachs is facing a couple of conundrums here. One is that the talent war is still raging on. There, or you know, maybe there's a little strong, but it's still robust, let's say. Uh, but because of that, you're having pressure on the top line as well as the expense line. There's a few other things that are kind of embedded there. It's not cheap to change course. So on one hand, you're going to have costs tied to severance that roll over into this year. So that's above and beyond what you saw in the fourth quarter, as well as the the waiting game that you're playing as they change their consumer strategy. Has David Solomon got a credibility problem? So I, we could talk about this all day because the, the reality is it's year five. So it is an inflection point. It absolutely is. But if you look at his his returns over time. At 10% this year, you're looking at him jump to 23% returns on equity Mm -hmm. last year, 11% the year before, and 10% is where they were in 2019. Um, He has meaningfully grown 
a lot of what the bank has done in the traditional businesses. They beat Morgan Stanley a couple of quarters last year in equities. Fixed income trading had the biggest jump on Wall Street. Advisory, I'm looking at, is one of the... I mean, when I say they beat, they beat by $400 million. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not a small amount. So in the core businesses that he does well at... He's shining. But the big strategic questions for Goldman, I think, is where now he's going to struggle more and face some questions. Because in the time that he has helmed the bank, you look over at Morgan Stanley, they've made two transformative acquisitions, and you have James Gorman, you know, sitting on a perch saying they're going to rake in a trillion dollars in net new assets and wealth management every three years. So then... Staying with that point, and and I guess going to the consumer part, that platform solutions, which is sort of the the noose around David Solomon's neck at this point, um, ha- them reorging it and changing what it fundamentally is, that's still really new. When do you think the street is going to deliver a verdict on that? So the clock is ticking very quickly until Investor Day, which is the end of February. Remember, the reason that that's important is because they're being very coy about how fast they can deliver Mm -hmm. on what he says is a key objective for him, which is to make that platform solutions business profitable. There are businesses that they're winding down, right? They're not going to be engaging in Marcus loans, for example. But they do find benefits to other things like their relationship with Apple. And mm-hmm. so, and remember, mm-hmm. Goldman Sachs is the only major bank with a major relationship with a technology firm in the consumer space at all. The question is, we're going through a tough market environment. And so last year, you saw consumer businesses largely get slammed. You see Goldman Sachs still hanging on to consumer, but when you look at the meaning of consumer at Morgan Stanley, it Mm. tends to be high net worth. It's wealthier individuals that are borrowing still and borrowing more. Uh, And also, you know, it's funny, me and Paul Davies were kind of laughing about the deposit rates at Mm -hmm. Marcus versus Morgan Mm -hmm. Stanley. uh, Goldman has been very vocal about their savings rates being 3.5% or so. Uh, Morgan Stanley, (laughs) I personally, I don't know if he knew if I was a financial reporter or not, but I was getting emails from Morgan Stanley Financial Advisors pitching their 3.5%. Mm-hmm. And so they're clearly, you you feel them in the market and you I'm see- I'm 4.3 now with Marcus. Yeah, so- I did a referral. Boom. I was going to say, where'd you get that 4.3? I got a referral. If you do a referral, you get like an extra basis point, extra 100. How exciting savings are. Yeah. But, <laughs> but you know, when the market is choppy and you don't know uh, where else to go, uh, it, it is an exciting thing, especially when, if you look at the cost of borrowing rising- yep. So, you know, that that's where Morgan Stanley's strategic advantage is playing off. At what point does management admit that Marcus was a mistake? You know, they already or have, they, have started have already? to. But but yeah. but but it gives them stuff. I mean, it does give them a huge depositor base that is stickier. And that makes their cost of funding lower. And so that is something that they have shown the benefits of already. And so this you idea You think the benefits are outweighing the downside at the moment? Um No. Yeah, like here. Here's the thing. I don't like talking about it in the scope of how it's been doing over the last couple of years because the initial reason that this all came about was yep. because everybody, management, the street wanted Goldman to diversify. Where maybe they can get dinged for here now, and they have said so today, is execution. Mm. What David Solomon said is, "We grew too too far too fast, and that cost us in terms of execution." So then, to paraphrase that, it, it, it seems like. We can't say it's a dud because Wall Street wanted this. They have it. They're going to keep it. So now it's how do they fix it and then implement it going forward. And in the face of headwinds, I think that's super important. If their provisions for loan losses are as ugly as they are right now. That jumped a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they bought this thing called Green Sky, which is essentially like a home installment 
platform here. Um, a question that we've been having is, what, are, what does this client base look like? There's a lot of white-collar layoffs in American society right now. So do you start to worry moving forward about what provisions even look like at a business like that? These are mm. open questions and ones I can't wait to hear real answers for, definitive yep. ones with numbers for Investor Day. <laughs> did, did the U.S. banks felt like a pack for a while. Wells was the obvious exception. It doesn't feel, this feels like a really differentiated earnings season. Mm Last year, just think about how much the consumer banks have sold off. And we heard this from the minute that the numbers came out. Even though provisions and um, reserve builds were higher than expected for those big consumer banks, Wall Street took it as a kitchen sink situation. Things are put behind us. But that means that, okay, if consumer is going to be what helps drive you through a recession, out of a recession, then what does investment banking really mean? That's a really, really deep way to end the show. Uh, Shanali, MVP, <laughs> MVP for the last couple of days. Thank you very yep. much. We really appreciate it. Um, coming up, we got the BOJ in just a few hours. That's going to be the main event. And we'll be back here tomorrow with The Cable. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>